Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. My name is Eric Halkren, and on today's episode, it's a very special one as John Heiner is celebrating his 40th anniversary working in the business of journalism. And we'll dig into all of it next on Behind the Headlines. And as I said, a very special episode today because my co-host is actually my guest, John Heiner, Vice President of Content for MLive. Welcome and happy 40th anniversary, my friend. Well, thank you very much, uh, Eric. I appreciate that very much. Um, I've been, I have been—I didn't sleep well last night. I'm going to be on the hot seat today. Because <laughs> yeah, you, I'm well known for my gotcha journalism, so you should, yeah. I'm glad you didn't sleep very well. So yeah, yeah, it's getting flipped on me today. So, uh, and I, you know, I got anyone who's listened to the podcast more than twice probably has heard me reference you in my forty, nearly for, nearly forty years in the business. Um, and actually, I'm in my 40th year as of Monday. It's my 39th anniversary, but I'm starting my 40th year, um, uh, for, fourth decade in journalism. Uh, I'm astounded some days that I'm here. I'm extremely grateful for it. And I thought it'd be a great conversation, especially with someone as media savvy as you, uh, sees a lot more, of, I think, the emerging landscapes than I do to talk about you know, this is not a career retrospective, and hopefully, not, hopefully not a memorial or a, uh, you know, a lead into my, my obit. Yeah. But, um, I'm still, you know, I'm still in the game and active and actually like leading a content organization. So we, we've weathered a lot of things. And so I think it'd be a good conversation today to, to touch on, you know, what I've seen, what we've learned and, you know, what that kind of portends for where media is going. Um, because it's going to keep going, that's for sure. It certainly is. And I will do my best to kind of thread the the, the needle between a eulogy and this is your life. Uh, and <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of land there. But I, I want to go all the way back, though, John, because we have not talked about this on the podcast. And I'm actually not sure how many people even know this story because it was you and me and a group of college kids. I invited you uh, to speak when I was teaching at Aquinas College to my media class. And I think in the first three or four minutes, you brought up an old school newspaper that literally had sponsored content in it from like the 1800s or so, like early 1900s, late 1800s to kind of explain that, you know, in, in a very Phil Jackson sort of basics when championships like everything is the same, but sort of different. It was a big moment for those kids because the light bulbs went on to go, OK, now if I notice patterns in media then I can work with those patterns and understand how to talk to the community, to my consumers. But if we go back to the you know late 70s, early 80s, when do you decide that you want to do this? And what was the thing that kind of brought you in? Well, I'm a creative type writer. Um, and my, my little story that uh, 
you know, meet cute story is uh, sophomore in high school. Uh, I had my parents owned a business. We lived out in the country. I lived alone. So I spent a lot of summers writing and I get in basic comp class. And in basically six weeks, I do all the assignments and the teacher doesn't know what to do with me. So she walks me across the hall. I'm 15 uh, to the school newspaper and says, you know, finish this semester, just work for the school newspaper. And the first thing I noticed is they had a record player and a coffee machine. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, and for the, the kids today, they, they, they can't get their head around that, you know, but it'd be like someone giving you an Xbox um, and saying you get two hours to play. But um, the first time that I wrote something that was a byline and any journalist probably can relate to this and somebody reacted to it. Right. And somebody said something like, I saw what you wrote, you know, or it got a reaction from the school administration. And that's just how I'm wired. You know, journalists are a little bit cynical or anti-authoritarian, but you're like, the underlying thing there is there's power in that. There is power. And so when you're 15, you don't have a lot of power. I don't even have car keys. So if, how can you affect change? How can you inject yourself and make a difference? And I know it sounds a little high-minded, but that's what the, uh, that's what the narcotic was for, for, for me. And, you know, within, you know, six editions of the paper, uh, me and my co-authors were getting, you know, attacked by football coaches and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of being deterred, it was like, this is really cool. Um, and of course, I, I frequently use the analogy monkey with a machine gun, you know, you that with power comes responsibility. So, you know, I, it, I got to tell you, I didn't sit back then and say, I want to lead a content organization someday or be editor of the New York Times. I was like, this is really cool. I love doing this. Um, there was something in the uh, energy, uh, the vitality of putting a paper out to anyone who's worked at a paper, deadlines, all that stuff. So it, it just hooked me in an early age. I knew at 15, I said, this, this is what I want to do. Maybe I was just being lazy and didn't look at all my options, but I was like, this is what I want to do. At that point in your life, we're, we're nearly a decade removed from Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. Were you, were you aware of that sort of stuff? And was that exciting oh to you? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my freshman year in high school, I had a current events class and we studied the fall of Saigon. The, all the president's men had just come out. And, you know, it wasn't until I'm writing stuff and putting it in a paper at school that that really resonated then was, wow, this is the responsibility of this, but the impact it can have and the importance in society. And I think I, I grew that a little bit because, in you know, if you took that sensibility and how our society reacted to what those journalists were doing and how seriously it was taken and the, the changes. I mean, Watergate changed the zeitgeist of America. Sure. It changed a lot. And do you take that to 2016? You're like, it's like water washing off a rock. It's like people just didn't have, you kind of wish people reacted that way or were reflective. And I think in our conversation today, we're going to talk about why it didn't, you know, society had changed in a way that that didn't work that way. But yeah, the, the Vietnam War, uh, it really, the cynicism, the lack of trust, that happened again in the, in the you know, 2010s here that we just went through. But people back then were shocked by it. This was a real watershed moment for America. And so the, the press at the time, again, Eric, you know about competition. What do we have? You know, um, you know Chet Huntley, you yep. know, Brinkley at night, you know, and, and um Wallace, I mean, these guys, we had TV at night in the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that is really important to note, and I have in a lot of the talks I give 
um, to groups and classes and things is we were, there's a phrase on the same page, but we were as a society literally on the same page and every community had their paper. It came out once a day. A lot of the news that was in the paper, if it wasn't local, it was Associated Press, same stories running across the country, same perspectives. Yeah, each paper, you have the conservative paper or liberal. But we were reading the same thing at the same time. We were ingesting information in a similar way. And the fragmentation of that has, has also been manifested in our society. And we will get to that, but I want to I fast forward a little bit to... to maybe the late 80s, early 90s, right before the nexus of, you know, what's funny is your anniversary and the anniversary of Tim Berners-Lee essentially inventing what we know as the yeah. World Wide Web is the same day, uh, diff- you know, two decades apart, but the same day. Uh, but, know you know, um, walk me. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. So you're saying I got 20 years without... Of like those were my glory years. You well, you, you, you had like t- two decades of glory, and then it's the rest of it was chaos, just chaos theory. <laughs> true, true. That's that's fascinating, my friend. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you two have an anniversary on the and the 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 dawn of the internet and your start in journalism are the same day. Um, and, and so. With that, you know, as we're on the nexus of the internet launching, where are you in your career right before 94, 95, and what, what's going on in, in the news cycle? Yeah, I'm going to just really quickly tell you that um, I started in 82 at a, a small daily in Adrian, Michigan. Walked in. Uh, I had an intern there, but the day I started was uh, typewriters. And uh, the first month I was there, they got the first computer terminals. But it's not a computer like somebody young today thinks of a computer. Right. It's the utility was... It was basically a word processor that was not connected to anything outside the building. And, you know, it, it made us faster at our job, but it didn't change anything. The papers rolled once a day and, and all that. And to your point, the technology inside the building kept getting a little bit better. But it did it, what we didn't have a connection to the outside world electronically. It was only in the printed paper. Um, I came to this company in uh, 1986 in Jackson and I started very similar, just a bigger paper. Um, cooler people, great company. <laughs> but um, again, same technology. Uh, our relationship to our readers was the same. If a plane crashed at, at one o'clock, that was bad because we weren't going to have it in the paper till noon the next day. Yeah. That was just the way it was. Um, in 94, I got promoted to Bay City as a Metro editor. And the Metro editor oversees all the daily news coverage of the paper. And my first cognition of the internet, I mean, at the time we were all starting to get email, use email and things like that. So we would get, check your email once or twice a day, see if somebody, and we weren't, there wasn't a lot of traffic on that highway. Sure. Yes. The funny, just like working on a typewriter and getting a computer, the funny thing I remember about the internet coming to the Bay City Times was we had one computer in the room that had a one email address for the paper. <laughs> and if you needed to go on and log on to the internet, there was a pad, a paper and a pencil. And you had to write down when you logged in, you know, in the website you went to, like, you know, this was a dangerous weapon, which as it turns out, is kind of true. Yes. <laughs> turns out they were right. At that point, there wasn't much there, but it turns out they were right. Right. But I have to tell you, it did not factor into the daily routine of planning news, presenting news, reaching audiences, building a business base, those things were still, I wouldn't even say nascent. 
I don't remember being in meetings with our publisher or circulation director and, and saying words like engagement, audience sure. engagement, you know, audience engagement was letters to the editor or someone walking in the office with a complaint or, you know, a chewed up paper from their snowblower. That was audience engagement. So can I pause you there for a second? Because I had this, I wrote this down last night because I had this thought uh, specifically because you and I offline talk all the time about that double-edged sword of audience engagement. And I thought to myself, so in 1984, how does a newspaper know who their stars are? How, how are they measuring that? Right. Oh, like, cause yeah. you know, cause you've got people that are clearly getting stories on the front page and that one seems pretty easy, but if you go two or three degrees in, how do they know who the stars are if they're not getting that sort of instant feedback? You've really touched on something that is very, <laughs> this was sort of a central tenant in my emerging cognition about value and about engagement and also diversity of voices. And it became, this became a foundational element. There's a reason I'm sitting in this job. <laughs> and it wasn't because I was great when I was a, well, I was great, but it wasn't because I, <laughs> I was brilliant. I was brilliant in 1982. It was because of things that kind of came across my, my, you know, as I worked in this industry and I saw things that were patterns that were probably, I was always pushing the envelope. I'm kind of a little anti-authoritarian inside the office too. It was like, I'm a why guy. Like, why do we always do that? Why do we always do that? But one of the things that struck me, because as a Metro editor, I inherited a system where every month you'd count bylines. That's how much, that's your only measure of worth of a report. It's how much, because we couldn't tell how much of your stuff was getting read. Sure. You know, I, it can't follow the paper into your house to see what you're reading. Um, and really, the surveys we do every three years were they, they weren't uh, granular enough for me to know what people were reading. So you just counted what people wrote and see if you can guess this. How would you differentiate between reporter A and reporter B on value? See, I have this list of bylines and and Susie did 25 last month and Bill did 32. Who's the better report? My gut would say the only way I would be able to add another variable to that equation would be letters to the editor. Uh, that's not a bad one. But what we actually counted was uh, A1 stories. How many stories? Okay, got, got it. How, got it. Uh, how many stories got on the front page or a section front? Because in your mind, then you're saying, well, that was a higher value story that mattered more. Well, uh, you know Kelly Frick. Yes. And Kelly, Kelly is our senior director of news, and she and I have worked since uh, 1994 together. But Kelly and I were working at the Bay City Times, and we were kicking this issue around of like perceived value. And one of the things, because she's a woman, that she noticed is the decisions about what went on the front page were being made in budget meetings every day by middle-aged white males, right? And so you're, you're, it's almost like a confirmation bias kind of thing every sure. day. Yeah, yeah, Is the filters that were being applied to what the community saw that everyone was on the same page about were being set by the dominant paradigm. <laughs> that it, and who picks the editors? The previous white middle-aged editor picks his successor. And I mean, so I don't want to get into like social justice and everything, but just from a product point of view and diversity of thought and what was being, and, and, and so Kelly had an idea about bringing more voices into these budget meetings, women, younger people. When you say budget meeting, you're not meeting, you're not meaning, I should say, what oh, people typically yeah. mean. Can you walk through what a budget meeting is in yeah. the, the, the aspect of journalism? Yeah, I'm sorry. Journalism has... Journalism has a bunch of little weird, you know, nomenclatures and things, but budget in the news business is your list of stories that you're working on or they're coming for the day. 
And so a budget meeting and dude, I spent 20 years of plus of my life waking up at quarter to five in the morning because the budget meeting was at 615 because the press rolled at, you know, 1130 or noon. And, you know, I got to say that it's phenomenal for anyone who hasn't experienced it. The, the rush you get every, it's a drug every day. And the speed that we worked at with accuracy to create a news, it's called the daily miracle. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it, it was a real, it's really something to see for anyone who hasn't seen it. But anyways, it starts with the budget meeting. And then in the afternoon you come back and you have another one to talk about what is shaping up for the next day. So that's, when I say the other budget that the editor deals with, that's like the money. Right. Yes. It had been generations of the same kind of thinking, creating the same kind of products, which at a higher level, I think is part of the reason that we missed the opportunities of the internet because it, it looked foreign. It didn't look like what we do. And plus we were making a lot of money. And that continues till around 2007 or eight, right? Is sort of yeah, when let the, me, can the, I tell you one of my favorite stats? I, I would love it. <laughs> And this is because I used to, uh, as this, the bricks were falling off the building, uh, uh, starting in 2006, I finally get my opportunity. Now we'd start to see like positions weren't being filled. Yeah. Things were starting to, you know, things were starting to get rough. And so the departing editor, I get named the editor, departing editor brings me in the office, shakes my hand. First thing he says is congratulations. And the second thing he says is you have to cut the TV guide out of the paper. <laughs> Well, anyone who knows yep. print readers, uh, the TV guide is you know sacrosanct, and uh, I got just brutalized. You know, my first couple months of the job, eight hundred calls in letters the first week that we cut. You know, we cut it from like thirty-two pages to twelve. But it, I really was at that point managing a retreat, and I'm really good at that. By the way, it's been the last 15, 20 years managing in retreats. It's not fun, but it, it changes the way like you turn the Rubik cube and see things in a different way. You see value in a different way, but that, that was the beginning. And I'm going to tell you my favorite stat because I'd go out and speak to groups. Cause they'd say, why did you take our TV guide away? So I'd go to the senior center and I talk about what's happening in the industry. What do you think was the, um, the, the peak year for newspaper circulation in America, like Sunday circulation? If you can get within a couple of years, you I'll give it to you. Uh, the peak year of Sunday circulation, I would guess, would be 1992. Boom! It was like 91 or 92. Well done. Well done. What is the peak year for newspaper profits in America? I feel like that's a trick question. I'm going to go higher and go to 2001. 2006. Okay. So that delta, right? That I call it that that triangle of of well, what was the word I'm looking for, <laughs> but we're just not going to address the problem because we were making more money and we were making money because number one, uh, we still had a monopoly because something happened in 2007 that changed everything. Now the internet was growing and there was commerce and we were even selling a few internet ads, which we benefited from, but the, the circulation base, even though it was falling, we still had the monopoly. We could charge more for our circulation, still, we still got to set our rate cards for, for print, but something happened in 2007 that changed everything. And it was, it was technological. It was the iPhone. It was the iPhone. And you know, the iPad comes out in 2009, which kind of furthered it a little bit, but the, the iPhone changed everything. That was the bonding agent between lifestyle and technology. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm gonna put this in the map. 
Oh, the map's going to tell me where the restaurants are. Oh, I can tell, I can not only get directions, but I can look at their menu and I can get and served ads. And it gave you information in a convenient way that wasn't once a day on your doorstep. And it isn't just because it's tact, not as tactile, the paper's a tactile product. You know, obviously you probably weren't going to carry it around in your car, but nobody really stopped and thought about how it insinuated itself into their lives. Right. So, oh, I call it, it was the Delta of deniability. That's what I want to say about newspapers. Yes. We could deny what was happening on the other side of the fence because we were still making a lot of money. And in any, it isn't just the newspaper industry. You look at any industry. Oh, you know, I, I worked in radio. I know what you're talking about. American car makers in the 70s, right? Sure. Yeah, we, yeah. We own the market and we're making money. I don't care if Nissan or Datsun or whoever comes in. It's that, you know, money occludes your vision, you know, clouds your vision about, about what the threats are and what your opportunities are. And so that's where we missed. And so, you know, we're in 2008, 2009 at this point. The iPhone is, at this point, ubiquitous, really. It, it, that law of, you know, distribution moved much faster than most as people just navigated to these things. What does the industry look like for you as we're heading into 2009? And then I want to talk more specifically about yeah. how journalism has changed. Well, there's an inflection point in 2009, too, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but we... In, in the that internet, one thing I want to tell you when we had that internet computer, <laughs> we also uh, thought we were really getting progressive and we tapped one employee as our online specialist. And that online specialist would do is we would write all our, do our budget meetings and write our stories for print, hit our deadlines. And then once we cleared deadline, she would jazz up the content a little bit. And she would put it on our website once a day. <laughs> and that's, that's what the web, that's what the internet's great for. Looking at something once a day. Yes, once You're a day. Static. You know, nobody likes moving images. Nobody like. yeah, obviously I'm being facetious, but so our mindset was still, yeah, once a day, you know, and if something major happened at six o'clock, we might put that on internet too, but we had a very static web page. There's news in the upper corner. There's sports over here. There's features. So that was 2005, six, seven ish. However, the decay in our, our ad base, the revenues, the attrition, I mean, everything was hitting us really hard. Plus, as you know, 2008, nine were wipeout in American economy, the housing bust and everything that was happening really hit our industry hard retail suffering. Um, and, you know, I, I, the numbers don't even, they don't make sense anymore, but the smallest paper we had was Bay City and I was in charge of it and the newsroom had 55 people when I got there. And we have, we have a 10th of that now, you know, in Bay City. <laughs> so that that's all revenue based. Uh, we, we could sustain that. So I remember the day in 2000 and late 2008, our publisher came into the room, uh, great guy, but you know, he was, we're all in the same boat. And he read, a, he read a message to our staff saying, we're going to go to less than seven days a week in print. Uh, we're going to you know, do this in uh, February. Uh, we're going to cut half the staff. Everybody who stays is going to get a pay cut. It was a really, really rough period. Um, and, but the one word, and he said, we need to do this to survive. And the one word that was not anywhere in his address was online or digital. Sure. Or audience engagement was not mentioned. And so Kelly and I and some other people um, uh, who were tapped to kind of, what does this new thing look like? 
right? We were getting in a room to, and it wasn't just an exercise on how many people could you afford to keep or, or any of that. And, and the premise of the, and what was also happening at the same time was AnnArbor.com, which is a company experiment we did. It was our company who did that and closed the Ann Arbor News and reopened as AnnArbor.com, which was a digital first kind of enterprise. They had online and digital in their formational thinking that, you know, and that was the whole point was to make it out. Ours was how do you run a, a newspaper three days a week and survive? However, in our one of our first planning meetings, uh, they said, you're going to go live on June 1st, 2009, three days a week, right? And the first paper is going to be Thursday that week. On Monday of that week, uh, GM is announcing bankruptcy. So we're sitting in a room and I'm like, we're newsmen or news people. And I said, how do you learn that on Monday and not tell anyone till Thursday, right? So we had this inert internet webpage sitting there. And it's just, it was obvious to me. It was like, you're a 24-7 news organization and the internet lets you be that 24-7. And you also have email and you also have push, you know, there's things you could push at people yep. using the internet. And so it seemed like organic to me. It seemed like it wasn't even a question that we would use digital. That was our tool. That's our toolkit. That's our, that's our path to survival. So we still wanted to make really good papers three days a week. We put a lot of thought into that. It was very, very disruptive, but it was obvious that oxygen was the internet. That was our future, you know? And, you know, there's a guy named Bernie Yang and Bernie Yang is the Rasputin of, uh, of our company. He knows everything. He does everything. Nobody knows how or why he, he, he lurks at 3 AM <laughs> fixing things on the internet, but he was uh, my internet, you know, guy, guru, specialist, digital guy that we had kind of digopsy. And so it was, you'll love this. But one of the things I carry over is we used to do these byline counts, like, right, productivity. And so we're posting things to the web. And another uh, really revolutionary thing we did in the company was allow people to post directly to the web. You know, instead of like having it sit for three hours yep. in an editing view, yep. it's like when it happens and you're at the ball game and there's a shock ending at 10 at night, post it to the web. We'll fix it later. It was, it was pretty revolutionary at the time. Anyways, I'd say to Bernie, I, I need a monthly report on how many posts everybody did, right? Oh, you know, Eric did 32 posts this month. So after a month or two of that, Bernie's like, would you also like to see how many times each story got read? <laughs> yes <laughs> two dimensions yes and so this was also a, a foundational element of what came together into my media group eventually though was it isn't enough that you write you know a lot it, it's how much is the, this is finally the thing that was missing all along is what is the audience reacting to what does the audience need they'll tell you right they vote with their what they read and that dimension started to change everything in terms of employee, not just production, but focus, productivity, um, connection with the readers, which was, this was also revolutionary. So a reader awareness at a writer level, you know? Yeah. And, you know, what was also happening at a parallel time was everybody else got to be a publisher at the same time too, which we really lost that, that monopoly and that that changed the landscape as well. You did. And I do want to talk a little bit more nuanced about how journalism has changed, you know, in the last 20 years uh, that you've been in the business. But I want to start specifically with, um, I, I think for a lot of us, was a reminder of how important 
the work that your team does. And that would be the Flint water crisis, right? right? Because we were the first ones there. We were the last ones standing after everybody had gotten there. Mm-hmm. You know, when you True. talk about engagement, they do a 24 hour news cycle and they're on to the next thing. We're not. We're continuing to unfold the story to this day. We're still doing that stuff. And so can you talk to me about what goes into a story like that that has legs that extend for years? That is counter or the antithesis of the internet. Most people do not tell four-year-long stories on the internet because there's no appetite for it well, unless you know it impacts a community. Yeah, and the, the funny thing or interesting thing is that came to bear once the national media got a hold of the Flint water crisis, the fact is the Flint water crisis had started a year and a half, two years before. Even I remember in 2009, which is six years before, sitting in meetings with the uh, the drain commissioner and county leaders in Flint because I oversaw Flint, Saginaw Bay City. And they were talking about this Karen Gandhi water line they wanted to build to, to, to Lake Huron and how much they were getting gouged for water prices in Detroit. All those factors were fed into the decisions that were made once there was an emergency manager in Flint. So we were writing literally, if Ron Fonger and other people in Flint were writing for six, seven, eight years about all of these storm clouds that were starting to gather. But when the crisis hits and you know, Dr. Mona and, and others come in, in, came forward very publicly in the New York Times notices, Washington Post, you know, The Guardian. I mean, sure. yes. All of a sudden, and so one of the, the counter narratives that, that occurred, at least in our industry of the trades was, you know, local, this was a failure of local journalism. And so the interesting thing is, is at a granular level, we were the most thorough, we were there, we're still there. We we're, we were meta on this story. And I remember uh, John Hassel was the senior VP of content for our company. And I were talking after this burst nationally, and, and he's like, you have all that background and it, we got to figure out a way to put that together in a way, not just to like eclipse the New York times or say, Hey, you know, it's not a pride thing, right. But it's to, to make, to, to do the definitive reporting, you know? And so going back to, you know, Kelly and uh, Flint news leaders, Brent Mickle, uh, you know, Ron Fonger brought in some real firepower from around our company and we did the what is still to this day the definitive story on how Governor Snyder, who's facing charges along with uh, I think seven other people, for you know government malfeasance that led to people getting sick and dying, um, was the definitive piece on who made the decisions, you know, who, you know who knew when, all that stuff. Um, and and I even wrote a piece for Pointer at the time saying this was not a failure of local meter. Uh, 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 local journalism, what this was, was how the internet kind of works when you got to, it isn't like people act like it didn't happen until they saw it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and, you know, that there was a, a failure or something, maybe we would have done different is, is realized four or five years in that you step back and you, you collect all these things into something that's got some punch and you put that out there, but it seems kind of weird to do for the people of Flint because they already know, you know, uh, but you, to bring it to the state level or the attention of the nation, it was something we 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 you know we eventually did it and did it really well. But we learned we learned from that uh, as well. And also, what you learn about the internet is how quickly you lose control of the narrative, uh, or how it how difficult it is to corral it. Frankly, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that, that brings us up to, you know, 2016 and then current day where you start to see this, um, you, you know, this, you called it a tsunami earlier. You'd start to see the tsunami against local journalism writ large. Everything is fake news. Uh, journalism, you know, it can't be trusted, won't be trusted. And yeah, I want to get your thoughts on that. And I also want to sort of unpack that a little bit because you're not only dealing with Twitter public journalists that haven't gone through the rigors of being a journalist. You've got Facebook news, but you also have outliers that people might not be familiar with that are also trying to fill that void in a way that may or may not be useful in things like neighborhood, which is another social app where people are doing oh yeah, reporting. And you're right. Going back to 2015, 2016 when Trump, you know, came down the elevator, um that sort of happened to journalism too. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is a fear irrefutable fact the most accountable journalism is the journalism that's closest to you where you live to your town and you know and like i was thinking last night i was out for my nightly walk in celine and i was told by a server in a restaurant last week that they're about to close the street again for the restaurants you know in new york times i'm going to tell you that it's going to be the celine reporter you know it's going to be celine post that tells you that that is happening and there's there's value in that utility in that and i think mostly people trust it and so when i i do get a a ton of feedback from readers and i gotta tell you it's it's a little frustrating but understandable because they start with i don't trust you it's you know uh you're biased and then they start to list why and it's the new york times or the washington post or it's cnn or or the other way fox sure yep and so when I drill down a little bit with them, and I, I've actually called some readers, I took it upon myself, uh, the readers who ask about bias, because I'm not going to argue with them. I want to say, tell me what you think is bias and tell me where you see it. And if you see it in our coverage, let's talk about it, you know. And generally, there's not, especially in local reporting, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the city commission did this, the school board did that. It's pretty traditional, too. What is happening now is people are drinking from a different water cooler, <laughs> I, I think that uh, the proliferation of media, the ability for everyone to publish, the sources that are coming, it's, it's indisputable that in 2016, the actors who were in use, manipulating social media were the, with the whole goal of dividing people succeeded. It shows you that uh, you know, the tools on the internet work, has had the effect of, I don't trust the water cooler. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get bottled water, I'm gonna get my brand. A bottle of water because that's what I yes that's yeah. what I trust right I was talking to some the other days like yeah I I you know I, I go through six filters in my house because I don't trust the city water and they don't even live in Flint you know it's it's then also the internet's made everybody an expert in everything because I can go research and find out what is really true about Hunter Biden right right yes yep and then I'm going to write a letter to John Heiner and tell him that M Live sucks because you didn't cover Hunter Biden by the way we don't cover international right news. right. But it used to be linear. I'm telling you, we'd write a story uh, about city commission. Someone would either write a letter to the editor or call, tell us why we were wrong, or this is an angle you missed. And we'd either say, hey, thank you, and cover that angle, or we would say, you're wrong, or whatever. It's coming at us from every direction now. And it's, it's like the bullets you can't see or hear. You don't know why people are getting in the mindset they are that causes them to distrust them live or the Detroit Free Press, or the local TV news. But it's really infected the public consciousness. And we go back to the beginning of the conversation about Watergate. 
whether you were a Nixon supporter or not, you knew something was seriously wrong had happened, right? It was an assault on the public. It was an assault on democracy. And we lost our ability to say, without pointing a finger at somebody else in this past election cycle, right? Because if you said, wait a minute, uh, you want to throw out an entire election in the state of Michigan because you think you think that the TCF said, you know, and the Supreme Court thankfully said no. But if you even said that, someone would point and say, see, you, you know, you're biased. Uh, you're a Democrat. Of course you think. We've lost our ability. And the, where the newspaper, that whole, we're on the same page, is we had a kind of a formal way to see stuff. We had a formal way to disagree. It was a little more civil. It is like a complete Donnybrook fair at all times. So I, I do want to wrap this up on a little bit more of a positive note because we're celebrating your fourth decade doing this stuff. Um, and if we look across the battlefield from your generalship, there aren't a lot of people in the industry, let alone in this company, that have been doing it for four plus decades. And so I, I want to dig in a little bit as we close this out. Like, what is what's the secret to your your youthfulness, right? Because it's not like you haven't evolved over the course of four decades. You continually evolve. Before we started this podcast, we were talking about things that is an evolution of storytelling. And so what is the thing that keeps you driving in this industry and not going, okay, that's enough? I mean, I, you know, you just laid out mm -hmm. some, some case studies that could be, okay, that's enough. But you haven't done it yet. And so what's the thing that, that keeps you going? Well, if you know me personally, too, like if you and I and a couple other people got together on a weekend, I'd be the one like, hey, you know, what's down that street? Hey, here's an idea we can do. Hey, look at some cardboard boxes. What could we do with those? I, I, my, the way my mind works is I always see myself as a hub of a wheel and journalism puts you at the hub of the wheel. Just in the morning, I will meet, I'll talk to you. And this afternoon, I'll meet to somebody as a president of a company. And, the, and, and later in the day, I'll talk to someone who's running a social service agency. And they all tell me something that's three different things, but I, my mind assimilates them and I come up with ideas. You know what would solve that woman's problem? You know, well, I took that to work and I, this is true. I was always a little bit of an agitator about why we do things the way we do. Well, when, when we were making a ton of money as an industry, nobody wanted to hear why we should do something different. And so, I mean, I think obviously I wouldn't be where I was if I wasn't successful and did some things right, but I was always kind of a pain in the ass, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so when things started to break, you know, when things started to look like crap, we need new ideas. That was, that was all my forte. I always had, they're like dandelions that pop up in my head. I <laughs> always, it just, I always have ideas and I always wanted to try things in a different way to see what the outcome would be. I never wanted to change the ethics of journalism. I didn't want to, you know, do anything that was inviolate, but I always wanted to do some, what if we took factor A and did something different? Like I wanted to drop the mask on the papers and put like our feature stuff, like people like puzzles, you know, put, put the puzzles at the top. And they're like, sure. go, go sit down, please. Leave us alone. <laughs> um, and so I was always kind of pushing the envelope that way, which keeps me amused. There's a nonstop party in my head. Trust me. It's really entertaining in there. It's two shows a day. It's great. Um, but at work, it was a little bit, I was always a guy kind of pushing the envelope or making people uncomfortable. And that wasn't always appreciated. But we get to 2006, 7, 8, I think I was wired for 
challenges. And this is the greatest challenge in our industry's history, in some ways, our society. And that has really kept me vital. Um, I love the discussions about how can we get at readers in a better way to give them better products, to make them more engaged with their communities, get them more engaged with the news, make them participants, let them use, let us be a, a vehicle for that. Um, not just like a vehicle that gets you from point A to point B, but jump into the vehicle, become a part of it. How can we use social media better in a responsible way? How can we, all that stuff still interests me and excites me. And again, uh, yeah, until I look in the mirror, I feel like I'm 18, you know, I feel like I'm 21 again, going into my first job, but I'm, I'm also I work with great people like you. I work with uh, younger people who are come up, have their own ideas and see things a different way. And uh, I've never been threatened by, by new ideas. That's awesome. John Heiner, as always, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your 40 years. And here's to, should I say here's to 40 more? Here's to 40 more. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not, but uh, well, I'm still having fun. So thank you, Eric. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, brother. Yep. And there he goes. A big thanks to John Heiner, not only for his 40 years, but his continued uh, hosting of this show. As always, if you like what we're doing, review and share wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, he is John Heiner celebrating an anniversary this week. And I am Eric Hulkerin. And this is Behind the Headlines.